Shalom, shalom. Welcome, welcome, world changers. Tonight, we're going to get into some very, very interesting and powerful stuff. I'm going to finish up 2 Kings chapter 15, going to 2 Chronicles as well. And we're going to get into the book of Isaiah, the first six chapters of the book of Isaiah. Lots to talk about there. We're going to be talking about again, once again, and we see this many times throughout the scriptures. We, we're talking about forgiveness without blood. We're talking about Jesus reigns with the Torah when he comes back, as it says. And also, we're going to be talking about the day of the Lord. And we are also going to be talking about the branch and Isaiah's conversion, you might even call it Isaiah's born-again experience, Isaiah's repentance is going to be very, very interesting. Lots of stuff to talk about. Pray that each and every one of you will be blessed by the reading of the Scripture, by the meditating on the Scripture thereof. It's going to be an awesome, awesome night. So I'm going to start out with 2 Kings chapter 15, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, so this is just actually where we left off last night in our chronological reading of the Bible. If this is the first time you're joining us, we are going through the, the Bible chronologically. Very, very important to do that. Uh, and it's very, very important to put it side by side. Uh, like, for example, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, put it up side by side with First and Second Chronicles, because Chronicles is more or less a repeat, um, not always, but more or less a repeat of what we read in the books of Samuel and Kings. Just like putting all four Gospels up side by side, you know, so it's very important to do that. That way you can really kind of, we can really examine it a lot better. Now in tonight's reading, I, I am going to have it set up side by side, but I'm not going to be reading it like that because it is it's so different. That's the thing. Second, Second Kings chapter 15 compared to uh, Second Chronicles chapter 26. It is quite, a, quite different. Uh, so we'll, we'll do some of it. We'll do some. Regardless, we will go through both of those chapters before we get into the book of Isaiah. Once again, let's begin. Second Kings chapter 15, verse 1. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, uh, I should say, all these names are sometimes confusing. Jeroboam, king of Israel. Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Yakuliah of Jerusalem. Now, Go on over here, Second Chronicles 26. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, or Uzziah, as some, a lot of people would say. Um, Uzziah would be the more of the correct pronunciation. Now Uzziah, in the footnotes, is Azariah. Keep that in mind. Azariah is Uzziah, who was 16 years old. See, that, that corresponds with what it says here, who was 16 years old when he made... Um, excuse me, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. It's 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 kind of hard to read it side by side because it's so different. But let's read on verse two here. This is Second Chronicles twenty six verse two. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king lay down with his fathers. Um, in other words, he passed away. Uzziah was sixteen years old. When he became king and he reigned for fifty two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was 
Yakelia, okay, so it's a little bit different than this one, right? Yekolia, uh, a little bit different spelling. Uh, and this is why I say let's not be too picky when it comes to names, especially in the Bible. Uh, let, me, let, me just, let me just clarify that. Let's not be too picky when it comes to the spelling or the pronunciation of names. Uh, and I've said this before, I believe that um, even in the children, even amongst the children of Israel back in the days of the Bible, back in Bible days, there were different ways of saying different names. Remember that whole thing we read about uh, earlier on when it says that, you know, in one part of Judah, or excuse me, one part of Israel uh, would say Shibboleth and the other one would say Sibboleth. Okay, so there'd be different pronunciations for the same name means the same thing. And we see this all the way through the scriptures, especially when you're when you're comparing like how we're doing now, like first and second Kings versus uh, first and second Chronicles, so on and so forth. Different spellings, same name. So we got uh, verse 4 here of 2 Chronicles 26. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord in accordance with everything that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, or Zechariah, who, uh, who had understanding through the vision of God. And, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him successful. You see, this is what happens all the time, right? As long as you're on the right side, you're, you're on the right side with God, God will make you successful. Back over to 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 3. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord in accordance with everything that his father Amaziah uh, had done. Only the high places were not eliminated. Now, it's a little bit different here, right? I mean, a little bit more detail. Uh, the, the people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. And the, and the Lord afflicted the king so that he had leprosy to the day of his death. He lived in a separate house, while Yotham, the king's son, was in charge of the household, judging the people of the land. Now, as for the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah lay down with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and his son, Yotham, became king in his place." So again, here, I think this is where we go off the rails when it comes to comparing. It's, it's very difficult to compare from this point on. So let me just continue here with, um, let me just have a sneak peek here ahead in. Um, There's not much left there to Second Chronicles 26. But um, over here in Second in Kings, we'll, we'll continue reading here. Verse 8, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his fathers had done. Okay, he did not desist from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, into which he misled Israel. Then Shalom, the son of Yebesh, conspired against him and struck him in the presence of the people and killed him and reigned in his place. Now, as for the rest of the acts of Zechariah, um, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Yehu, saying, Your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so it was. Shalom, the son of Yabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned for one month in Samaria. 
when Menahem, Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Yabesh, in Samaria and killed him and became king in his place. Now, as for the rest of the acts of Shalom in, and his conspiracy, which he formed, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Then Menahem attacked Tifsa and all who were in it and its borders from Tirzah, because they did not open up to him. So they attacked it and ripped up all it's women who were pregnant. Well, that sounds pretty pretty bad there. Verse 17, in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel and reigned for 10 years in Samaria. He did evil in the sight of the Lord for all his days and did not desist from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, into which he mis misled Israel. Pool the king of Assyria came against the land and Menahem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver so that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his rule. Then Menahem collected the money from Israel and all the mighty men of wealth from each man 50 shekels of silver to pay the king of Assyria so the king of Assyria returned and did not stay there in the land. Now, as for the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of, of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem lay down with his fathers, and his son Pekahiah became king in his place. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned for two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not desist from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, into which he misled Israel. Then Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his officer, conspired against him and struck him in Samaria in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Arieh. And with him were 50 men of the Gileadites, and he killed them and, be, and became king in his place. Now, as for the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and everything he did, behold, are they, uh, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 20 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not desist in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, into which he misled Israel. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath, Palise, the king of Assyria, came and took Aion, or excuse me, Eon, Abeth, or Abel, Beth, Maka, Yanoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he led their populations into exile to Assyria. And Hosea, the son of Elah, formed a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him and put him to death, and he became king in his place. In the twentieth year of Yotham, 
the son of Oziah. Now, as for the rest of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Yotham, the son of Uzziah, or Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Pretty good name. Zadok means righteous. And he did, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He better do what was right in the sight of the Lord. Um, coming from the line of Zadok, that's for sure. He acted in accordance with everything that his father Uzziah had done. Only the high places were not eliminated. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the Lord of the house of the Lord. Now, as for the rest of the acts of Yotham, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to reign, or excuse me, began to send Razan, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. And Yotham lay down with his fathers, and he and he was buried with his fathers in the city of his father, David, and his son, Ahaz, became king in his place. Moving on over here to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 6. Now he went out and fought against the Philistines and brought down the wall of Gath, the wall of Yebne, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines, God helped him against the Philistines and against all, or against the Arabians who lived in Gur Baal and the Maonites. The Ammonites gave tribute to Uzziah, and his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he was, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, the valley gate, and at the corner buttress, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and carved out many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill, in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, recorded by Yael the scribe, and Maaseah, the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600. Under their direction was an army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army Shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made machines of war invented by skillful workmen to be on the towers and the corners for the purpose of arrows and great stones. So his fame spread far, and he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Pride in Uzziah's undoing. Excuse me. Pride is Uzziah's undoing. But when he became strong, his heart was was so proud that he acted corruptly. See, this is what always happens, right? When you get too blessed, many times, not always, but many times, it causes 
pride which causes corruption. And he was untrue to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been untrue and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. You see, this is what happens, right? When you get too blessed and too proud, um, you think you can just overstep your boundaries. And this is exactly what Uzziah was doing. He was overstepping his boundaries. He was basically acting like a Levite when it was only lawful for the Levites to do what he was doing. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. See, that's what always happens. Something like that happens. Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous on his forehead and they, and they quickly removed him from there and he himself also hurried to get out because the Lord had stricken him. Well, yeah, <laughs> Uzziah, uh, I would have, <laughs> you don't wait until something bad happens, you know. King Uzziah, this is verse 21, King Uzziah had leprosy to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, afflicted as he was with leprosy, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And his son, Yotham, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the Acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, excuse me, the son of Amos, has written. So Uzziah laid down with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings, for they said he had leprosy. And his son, Yotham, became king in his place. Okay, quickly, I'm just going to see what's going on here in the live chat, and then I'll get back to, I'm going to buckle your seatbelts, everyone. I'm going to be reading, I'm going to start reading the book of Isaiah. It is going to be absolutely phenomenal. Get ready, guys. Cat Cool, good to see you here. Matthew says shalom. Uh, Tammy says shalom. All shalom, Tammy. Great to see you. Blessings, blessings. The Great Deception says shalom, everyone. Shalom, the Great Deception. Good to see you as well. Okay, so um, once again, before I jump in, uh, for those of you who are on other platforms, if you want to actually see what I'm doing, if you're interested in uh, reading along with me, I'm going to be sharing my screen. I'm live on YouTube right now. I'm going to be sharing my screen. So just go on over to YouTube. Look me up over there. It's Christopher Enoch on YouTube. Kingdom Concept says, yes, yes, Yahoo. Yes, yes, Yahoo. For those of you who don't know, that's um, is I, Isaiah's Hebrew name, or that would be the correct pronunciation, actually. Yes, Yahoo. Um, I'm going to say Isaiah probably for the most part, just for the sake of uh, just the... Most people know it as Isaiah, um, although I probably will. Maybe I'll use Yeshiyahu um, interchangeably throughout this throughout this book. But uh, yeah, since everybody knows it as Isaiah, 
conventionally uh, pronounced as Isaiah. I'm going to I'm going to pronounce it as Isaiah, at least for the most part, maybe. Okay, let's see what's all right. Let's do it, Isaiah, Isaiah. This is awesome. Rebellion of God's people. Now, pay close attention as we read this. This is awesome. By the way, this is one of the one of the few books that actually, what in the Gospels, uh, it says that Jesus himself quoted from this book. He read from this book um, in his uh, when he was at the synagogue. So very very important, and uh, it's very awesome, awesome book, very awesome prophet, Yeshua. So, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotham, Ahaz, and uh, Hezekiah, or again, Hezekiah uh, would be his uh, Hebrew name, uh, kings of Judah. Notice, right from the very beginning, I want to point this out. This is clear that... Isaiah is conveying to us the vision that he got from God, okay? Again, speaking like a prophet, he doesn't speak like, you know, like many others in in Scripture. He speaks with authority. Uh, He gets his words. um, At least when it says that he's got a vision from God, or it's a vision that he got from God in this context, uh, it's pretty clear where it came from. It's not that it came down, you know... um, it's not that uh, he heard it from someone else. He got it directly from God. And, you know, we see this throughout the book of Isaiah. Verse thir- uh, verse 2, excuse me. Listen, heavens, and hear, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Quote. This is what I call, this is what I call the word of God here. When you got quotes, when you got words within quotes, and it says, thus saith the Lord, the Lord has spoken, God said, whatever you want to, however you want to put it, this is the word of God. Literally, what the words that came out of God's mouth, not the other stuff that was pad, you know, pads it. For the Lord has spoken, quote, sons I have raised and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with guilt, offspring of evildoers. I suppose this would be seed. Yeah, it would be seed. Seed of evildoers. That would be Zerah. Okay, again, please understand in the Hebrew, in the scriptures, you never you never read uh, seeds when it's talking about many people. Sorry, Paul, but it's just not the way it works. You know, Paul tried to make that uh, argument in Galatians chapter three, but that's never the way it works. Zerah always always conveys, at least potentially conveys, many people. Zerah versus Zeraim. Zeraim is actually like. Zerah is Hebrew for seed, and Zeraim is Hebrew for seeds. Never do you see Zeraim, seeds, when referring to many descendants. It's always Zerah, seed, 
Speaking of many. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The entire head is sick and the entire heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing healthy in it. Only bruises, slashes, and raw wounds. Not pressed, not pressed out or, or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Kind of, remember, kind of reminds me of what happened in America there a few years ago. As for your fields, strangers are devouring them in front of you. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a city under watch. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Listen to this, guys. Listen to this, okay? Listen to this. This is awesome. Hear the word of the Lord. This is verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? Now, before I go on, let me just say this. Think about it like this, because... Christian theology, at least mainstream, modern, corrupt Christian theology, would tell you that Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system in the so-called Old Testament, okay? So, logically speaking, just as, <laughs> just as one plus one equals two, I mean, Logically speaking, whenever it talks about sacrifices in the so-called Old Testament, you can play you can place Yeshua there. All right? Because they say, Christians say, if you know it says, you know, let me just say, they understand and they teach that the sacrificial system is what covered sin in the Old Testament. Therefore, now since Yeshua is the fulfillment of the sacrifice, then uh it, it, it you know, that law is fulfilled, and so his sacrifice covers our sin. Keep in mind, when you're reading through the scriptures, that same, that same mindset. What are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? Here we go. Here we go again. It is, it's the words within quotes. We're talking about the word of God. And look at how God speaks here. He's like, it's like, it's almost like, it's almost like he's saying, so what? Can you imagine on judgment day, you go before the Lord and you, well, you know, I have faith in the, in the ultimate sacrifice. I have faith in the sacrifice. What, what, what would happen? 
If the Lord looked at you and said, basically, what's that to me? Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus made it very, very clear. Crystal clear what's going to happen on the day of judgment. Many nations will come before me, yes, for judgment. And he will divide the people. And he judges them based upon their works. That's what it says. Like it, as they say, like it or lump it. That's what they, that's what it said. That's what Jesus said. That's the words in red. He didn't say, oh, excuse me, sir. Did you say the sinner's prayer? Did you accept me as, as your Lord and Savior? Oh, you did? Okay, you go over here. Oh, did you? No, oh, no, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, you go over there. Okay, you, oh, you, but you did go over here. No, that's not how he separated the people. That's not how he separated the people. It's, a, it's very, very important to understand this. Very, very important. Because let's let's take the words in red over... over I'm, I'm going to say it like I always say. It. Let's take the words in red over what Paul says, okay? Let's just do that. Because you put them up against... You put them up side by side if... Notice I say if they they contradict each other, which one do you which one do you choose? See, this is it. The words in red, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, right? The throne of judgment. All the nations. This is not talking about the Israelites alone. This is not talking about the Jewish people. All the nations. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put, he will put the sheep on his right and, his, and the goats on his left. Listen, people, we've got it right. Yeshua, Jesus told us very clearly how judgment day is going to go down. He couldn't be clearer. Sorry, but you don't see Paul's theology here. Like, hello, I'm just saying. I'm telling you the truth. This is how it's going to go down. Verse 34 of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For, read with me very clear. This is, for, this means, this is the reason, right? This is the reason. This is because, why, why? Why should you take the inheritance? Why should you be saved? Why should you take the inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world? For uh, uh, you said the sinner's prayer, um, you know, on such and such a date at Billy Graham's crusade. Uh, sorry, um, I must have been some flashback or something happened. For uh, Jesus said, for uh, you accepted me as your Lord and Savior and you accepted my, the debt, the, your debt that I paid on the cross. I, I, I took the full wrath of God for you. On the, oh, sorry, man. I, I, I wasn't, what am I reading? Something's wrong with me here. Verse 35, the words in red. This is why they're saved. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Hello, that's, that's Torah. You are obeying because you obeyed Torah. You love me. You serve me. You've done good to me. I was thirsty and you gave me 
something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. In case you guys don't know, I know most of you do, but in case there's a few of you that's listening that don't know, that is Torah. Fulfilled. Obeyed. Right there. Love your neighbor as yourself and all that comes with it. Do good to the poor, to the needy. It's all there in the Torah. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, uh, sorry, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you and or thirsty and gave you something to drink? Uh, we don't recall that, Lord Jesus. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? I never, you weren't really a stranger. Uh, or needing clothes and clothes. Uh, we never, <laughs> you weren't going around naked. Lord, what are you talking, what's going on? You didn't need clothes. When did we see you sick or in prison and and go to visit you? You were never sick or in prison there, Lord. What are you talking about? Then the king will reply. This is verse 40. Then the king will reply, truly, truly, I tell you whatsoever you did, did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I take it personally. Then he said to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed. <laughs> There's your loving, sweet Jesus there. There's your loving, loving, sweet Jesus there. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. In other words, you didn't do anything for me. Do. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. See, look after me. That's the, that's the principle of the Torah. In other words, Basically the same thing. It's the same principle of uh, Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Depart from me, you anomians, you who live like there's no law, you who live against the law of God, anomians. Verse 44, they also will answer, Lord, like when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? Keep in, this is a very important point too. Notice, they came to him, as some people believe, well, if you come to Jesus, he will never cast you out under any circumstances. Not true. Take the whole scripture in context. And some people believe, well, all you got to do is confess him as Lord and you're saved. Wrong. Wrong. Sorry, Paul. You're <laughs> wrong. They, will, they also will answer, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? They're confessing him as Lord. They're coming to him. That, 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 you know, that's, doesn't that fit the profile for a Christian? He will reply, truly, I tell you, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. Not to be annihilated, 
but eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Uh, some people argue that this eternal punishment is, is annihilation. If if this eternal punishment is just for a moment of time, then in to be consistent, then this eternal life must be just for a moment in time too. Let's be consistent. But look at this, Isaiah, the sacrifice, right? If logically speaking, if Christians are are correct in what they say that Yeshua is the 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 fulfillment of the sacrifice, He is your sacrifice. Then why is the Lord saying this? Why is the Lord saying speaking as if the sacrifices mean nothing? That's my point. That's my point. And the reason why I brought up Matthew chapter 25 and mentioned Matthew 7 verses 21 to 23 is just to also confirm that point. And that point is, if all you have is just faith in the sacrifice and you don't have the actions, if you don't have the do, if you don't have the actions, if you're not in line with the instructions of, of the Father, Sorry, they don't cut it. The blood doesn't do it's doesn't the dud the blood is pretty much worthless if you still live like the devil. That's what the scriptures say. I know that's not what mainstream mainstream. Corrupt Christianity tells you, but that's what the scriptures say. With perhaps the exception of Paul, but again, depending on how you want to interpret Paul, people interpret Paul as a wide spectrum of, of interpretation of Paul. But if Paul said anything contrary to that, he can't. He doesn't have the authority to do that. He's not even a prophet, and even a prophet can't do that. A prophet cannot come against what is already established in the Torah. Never. Nobody has authority to do that. In fact, I will even say that because God established his Torah and his law as eternal, not even God would do that. What I mean is God wouldn't go back on his word. I don't, if he said forever, 40 some odd times as much as I counted. I know that other, I know there's a rabbi that uh, said he counted 65 times where God said his word is, especially his law, his Torah is eternal and to be observed forever. Second Kings 17, 37. What, what can you say? So Isaiah chapter one, verse 11. What are your many sacrifices to me? Can you imagine the Lord saying that to some Christians? What, what is your faith in the sacrifice to me? What is your faith in the ultimate sacrifice to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and, of fatted, uh, uh, and, and the fat of fatted cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. See that? What's he, what, what is he saying here? He's saying pretty much exactly what he said in Amos chapter 5. He's rejecting their sacrifice. He's rejecting it. 
He said, I don't want any more. Forget it. I don't, what do you think you're doing, people? You think that this sacrifice somehow pays for your sin? It doesn't. You think that the sacrifice somehow is some commodity? To pay for the quote-unquote debt of your sin, as most Christians teach today, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the word of God here. I'm talking about the word of God. This is what it said. Listen to the listen to the spirit of this of this passage. Listen to what God is actually trying to say here. What are your many sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fatted fatted cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courtyard? So, see, what God is doing here now, he is pointing out the problem. He is pointing out, okay, this is this is my problem with you guys. Yeah, okay, you, you come with your blood offerings all the time, okay? You come with blood, 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 fat, blood, fat, and blood, fat, and blood, fat, all the time. I'm sick of it, is what God is saying. God is saying, that does nothing for you. I still hold this stuff against you. You trample my courtyards. In other words, you think that that covered your sin? Sorry, folks, it didn't. You think that blood washed away your sin? Sorry. Rude awakening for a lot of Christians. Sorry. You think you can go on sinning and claim the blood? Sorry. Except I'm afraid when that when they actually come to that realization, they cannot try again. You know, it's like, sorry, try again. No, sorry, <laughs> you cannot try again. Too late. By that time, you're at the end of Matthew 25. The end, you're you're already judged. Now that by that time, you're already at Matthew 7:23. You're already judged as a lawless, a lawbreaker. Who requires of you this trampling in my courtyards? So what God is saying here is, you guys are sinning. You're trampling my courtyards. And uh, you think that this blood just, this is like your little magical covering? Like I said, there's a lot. Of, there are a lot of Christians out there that will go to the judgment thinking that they're clothed with the righteousness of Christ but they will just be they they will be the fulfillment of the emperor's new clothes man i wish everybody studied even even though that is a fictitious story the story of the emperor's new clothes it is so awesome because it has a spiritual meaning it can be applied beautifully in this situation in the, in, a lot of Christians believe that they are um, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That somehow deep within, somehow they can have their little deep dark secrets and their stains and their sin underneath the cloak of Christ. It doesn't work like that. Sorry. It doesn't work like that. You cannot do that. That's a, that's sacrilege. That's blasphemy. Can't, can't do that. Plain and simple. Verse 13. Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. This is, 
This, these are the blood offerings, by the way. Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Now, notice, uh, for those of you who know a little bit about the Torah, there are several different ways to forgiveness in the Torah. One, which is a very, again, uh, it's a very ineffective way, and this proves that, and that is through the blood offerings. Another one is through incense, as it says in, in uh, the book of Numbers. Incense is also a, a means of atonement and forgiveness for sin. But not all, not in this case, it's not. And same with the offerings. The fat and the blood, the animals. This is why, this is why those who really study the Word of God, the Tanakh especially, and the Torah, would say, hey, Blood and some of these other things are not always effective. They are probably one of the most of least effective means of atonement if they if if you don't if they're not uh, taken properly. But the most effective way of atonement is repentance, and we read this all the way through the scriptures. This is awesome, folks. This is awesome. This is awesome. Again, for any of you guys who are listening to this, if you know of anybody, friends or family that need to to hear this. Shoot them a message right now. If you're in the same home that they're in, call them over right now and say, hey, listen to this. I've read this over so many times, and it it, it is a blessing to me every time I read it. It's just an awesome, awesome revelation. It's an awesome, awesome revelation. New moon and Sabbath, the proclamation of an assembly. The proclamation of an assembly, that can be very much uh, uh, like what you would call church today. Church. And your Christian holidays too. In this, in this, in this sense, new moons and Sabbaths are the holidays that's it's proclaimed in the Torah. But again, that doesn't cut it in and of itself. I cannot endure wrongdoing and the festive assembly. So again, what does this mean? Obviously, they are. Um, these people are, you know, assembling themselves together. They're not forsaking the assembly of themselves together, right? They're assembling. They're having their little church, so to speak. They are doing what they think they should be doing, at least on the outside, at least going through some, notice I say some, of the motions. But in the meantime, they're also committing sin. They're, they're breaking Torah with their right hand, and they're 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 keeping a few commandments with their left hand. They're breaking Torah on one side and they're, and they're keeping Torah on the other. That's basically what this says. I cannot endure wrongdoing and the festive assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a burden to God? Can you imagine being a burden, a burden to God? They have become a burden to me. And by the way, before I get too far, thank you for the likes over there on TikTok and on YouTube and on Podbean. I appreciate it. Those of you who like this, yeah, don't forget to leave a like. 
Can you imagine being a burden to God? I am tired of bearing them, says God. You know, you, <laughs> I mean, someone might ask, does God ever get tired? If someone ever asks you that, the answer is yes. He gets tired. He gets tired of, of people who think that their sacrifice or their faith in the sacrifice or their little motions or their little church or their little whatever cuts it when they themselves are caught in sin, when they themselves are stained with sin. That is what tires God. Yeah, God, God gets tired. Yes, he does. He, get, he gets tired. Can you imagine how serious it would be for God himself to be burdened? The one who created the universe, that nobody even knows how big it is, right? And in all of our great technology, we have not even been able to measure the size of it, let alone the vastness of it. The power of God, yet this kind of stuff, which I believe is practiced in the church today, spiritually speaking, figuratively speaking, this stuff is practiced in the church today. God says it's a burden to me. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of you going around saying, well, I sacrifice, whatever. You cannot come to me, proclaim me to be Lord, and have faith, so much faith, that you can do great mighty works in my name, as it says in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus didn't deny any of that. They came to him, they professed him as Lord, and they had faith, great faith. Yet, Jesus said, depart from me. Why? The, per the reason is very, very clear. You anomians, you who live like there's no law. You who live against the law of God. Actually, when he said, depart from me, you lawless, you, you workers of iniquity, you lawless people, that was, that was in fulfillment of one of the Psalms, by the way. In the Psalms, as I always say, is like Jesus, Yeshua himself speaking first person. Verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Wow. Even, yes, even though you offer many prayers, I, I will not be listening. This is serious. Your hands are covered with blood. In the footnotes, full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Notice, notice. He didn't say, I accept you as you are. Just come as, I accept you just as you are. I'll wash you up. Don't worry, it's nothing you do. I'll do it all for you. That's not what he said. God gave you abilities. And he expects you to use those abilities. Wash yourselves. Wash yourselves, he said. I mean, God could have said, I'll wash you. Hey, guys, just stay put. I'll wash you guys up. Mm -mm. You wash yourselves. 
You make yourselves clean. Remove, you remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. And let me just make it very clear. Sometimes we need definitions here. Evil as defined in the law of God. 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. If you should be doing something that you are not, or you are doing something that you shouldn't, if you are transgressing the law, that is sin. That is evil as defined by God. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan. Plead for the widow's case. Again, I mean, this is kind of, I mean, this is in essence exactly what the sheep did in the parable of the sheep and the goats, what we just read there, Matthew chapter 25. Invitation to debate. <laughs> Invitation to debate God. Just a quick little quick little note here. I just saw just out of the corner of my eye over on TikTok. It says uh, we got uh, the pious crusader says, uh, hey, Brother Christopher, when the Bible says Jesus uh, will be called the wonderful counselor and mighty God, was this a prophecy given to the people that Jesus would be put in the place of God by Christians? Um, I would highly, I you know, uh, I recommend you look that up in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is an older manuscript an older family of manuscripts it says something a whole lot different in this in the septuagint um also keep in mind that word god that's in there if you look it up you look it up in in the lexicon it will show you uh that that word god is actually used um to describe nebuchadnezzar as well just saying okay i'm not going to get too much into that right now because we're, we're talking about this right now isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 but stick around Stick around, Pius. Um, after we're done here, depending on how much time we have left, we'll be taking some questions and comments. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. A lot of you guys know this. This is something that's actually quite uh, famous uh, in Christian circles, especially uh, in the evangelical circles that they use this uh, to, um, to further their evangelical um prerogative verse 18 come now let us debate your case or in in other translations it would say let us reason together or it says here argue imagine that god is calling you to argue with him debate with him reason with him as it says in many of the other translations Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white. They shall be like wool, means white. Um, if you are willing, if you are willing, there's the condition. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness, once dwelt in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become 
waste matter, your, your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after gifts. It reminds me of what I always talk, I always talk about those uh, people who are hyper-literal in their translation and interpretation of the scriptures. Never fall into the pitfall of being hyper-literal. Because you see, hyper-literal, people would say, see, it says everyone loves a bribe and chases after gifts. Is that true? Everyone? Maybe every, every one of those rebels that it's talking about, every one of those thieves that, are, that they're talking about, but certainly not everyone. Again, another one of many um, warnings and evidence that we should never take it hyper-literal. They do not obtain justice for the orphan, nor does the widow's case come before them. Therefore, the word of, excuse me, therefore the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will have satisfaction against my adversaries and avenge myself on my enemies. I will also turn my hand against you and smelt away your impurities as with lie. And I will remove all your slag. Then I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Repentant ones with righteousness. But wrongdoers and sinners together will be broken. Right. So notice, this is very, very clear, people, that not everyone is a sinner. If it was, if that's the truth, then it would, it would be... Absurd, be useless to talk about two, be useless about you know to talk about the righteous people in one verse and sinners in the other. Why even mention righteous those who are you know repentant and righteous if there's if they don't exist? With wrongdoers and sinners, they will wrongdoers and sinners together will be broken, and those who abandon the Lord will come to an end. You certainly will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed by the gardens which you have chosen, for you will be like an oak whose leaf withers away, or like a garden that has no water. The strong man will become like flax fiber, and his work a spark, so they shall together, they shall both burn together. Burn and there will be no one to extinguish them. Isaiah chapter 2. This is an awesome, awesome, awesome uh, passage here. This is what I was talking about when I said Jesus reigns with Torah. So, question here for every everybody who is... Um, for everybody who's a... Um, anti-Torah believer, if there is such a thing. You think that the law is done away with? You think the law is fulfilled? Why is it that when Yeshua came back, when he comes back, it says he will rule? He will rule with his Torah. He will rule with his Torah. 
that's not to even mention the fact that, that, that what, 40 plus up to 60 some odd times throughout the scriptures, it says the Torah is eternal, forever, never to pass away, not temporary, not the age of the Torah. This whole dispensationalism thing is, is a huge lie, huge lie. Never, ever, never, never buy into this. Never buy into this. The way it was all based upon the misinterpretation of a bad translation. The translation in the old King James English was, it says, sometimes it says in this dispensation in, uh, in, um, in the New Testament. But the word dispensation doesn't mean time. It doesn't mean a, sp a space and time. It's talking about stewardship. It's talking about it's talking about management. It's got nothing to do with time. It's got nothing to do with the space and time. Time, you know, it's ridiculous. So people who don't know the the original manuscripts, they take the bad translation from the King James, the word from the bad bad translation, i.e., dispensation, and they misinterpret. The bad translation is like layer upon layer of error. They misinterpret the, the, the term dispensation to mean what it means, what it meant, what it means in modern times, as opposed to what it meant way back in 1611 when the King James translators first translated it, way back in the 17th or 18th century. It means something completely different than what it does today. It's bad. That's a bad thing. Um, and another thing too is, when it comes to what they say, well, never, you know, you need to rightly divide the word of God. Rightly dividing, because usually these dispensationalists always quote this rightly dividing thing together. They, they quote them together because they need something to support their taking a machete to the word of God. Oh well, I'm I'm rightly dividing it. Again, when Paul said, uh, when he, when he told Timothy to rightly divide, again, that's a bad translation. King James translators did a bad job there, right? In the original Greek, it means to cut straight. In the in the context, let's just go to the let's just go to the um, to the um, the scripture itself that I'm I'm referring to. This is Second Timothy chapter fifteen. Verse, no, chapter two, uh, two, that is, sorry, verse 15. So Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that ha that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That word rightly dividing is translated out of one Greek word that simply means to cut straight. So what does that mean? It is just a figure of speech that is equal to what what we say today, shoot straight. T tell the truth and shoot straight. That's, that's all that Paul was saying to Timothy. He was just saying, hey, Timothy, you know, a study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. And, you know, when you, tell the truth, man. Preach. Tell the truth and shoot straight. Shoot from the hip. I mean, you know what I mean? So, I mean, we, again, this is hyper-literal, but taking it hyper-literal when you have a bad translation to begin with. Um, King James is, is good in some areas, but it's not good in other areas. 
Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word, of, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days, so this is talking about, you know, the return of Yeshua, actually, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. So this, again, is figuratively speaking. This is not talking about a literal mountain. Um, and chief of the mountains simply meaning um, that the um, basically the authority of the of the uh, the house of the Lord or the temple of God, the authority that will be coming from the temple of the Lord in the last days will be the chief authority on the earth. That's basically what it's taught. That's what it means. And will be raised above the hills, which means, again, it, 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 what that means, again, it's not literal. Uh, it means that the authority of, of the Lord that will come forth from Jerusalem, uh, from the house of the Lord in the last days, will be raised above all other authorities, all other nations, all other. It, it will be the world, the world government. Okay, it will be, and all nations will stream to it. All nations, uh, again. All nations, meaning Gentiles, okay? This is not just for the Jews. This is Gentiles. And many peoples will come and say, many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. So that he may teach us about his ways. In the footnotes, some of his ways. And that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go out from Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the law, now in the footnotes it says instruction, but that's only because the word for the law here in the Hebrew, which many people uh, who know Hebrew and the Jewish people would say is better translated as instruction anyway, and that is Torah. If you look it up now, I don't have it. Um, let me just pull it up here for you guys. This is Isaiah 2, 3. Um, and I'll just prove it to you guys that it is Torah. In other words, when Jesus comes back, he will be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem using the law of God, Torah. Okay. He cannot be the king of kings. The king, king has a law. He cannot be a, a king without a law. Okay. A king cannot exist without a law. Okay, so just going through here, uh, the interlinear. And it says right here, Torah. This is Torah, the Hebrew word Torah, right there, okay? Shall go forth Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, okay? So Jesus will come back and he will teach Torah. Can you imagine that? Can you just imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus teaching Torah from Jerusalem and everybody going to see? I tell you one thing, I would if I was around in that in those days, if I'm around in those days, I want to go too. Definitely count me in. You know, buy me a ticket. I'm going, man. Like, yeah. For Torah will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Amen. So if Torah is done away with, if Jesus fulfilled the Torah in the way that a lot of Christians believe that he did, I mean, he did fulfill the Torah, which oh, the word fulfilled in the Jewish mind only means to obey, by the way. It doesn't mean to it doesn't mean to put it gracefully, bring it to an end. It doesn't mean bring it to an end. It doesn't mean, you know, uh, finish it. It just means it just means to do it. It means to obey it. Uh, if you go to any Jewish person today, uh, if you go to if you go if you go to any Orthodox Jewish community today and any practicing Jew, you, you stop them on the street and you say, excuse me, especially a rabbi, excuse me. I have a question for you. Do you fulfill the Torah? They'll all say, of course I fulfill the Torah. Every Jew is supposed to fulfill the Torah. I mean, that's what that's one of our duties. I mean, that's our that's the purpose of our life here is to fulfill the Torah. So when Yeshua said, when Jesus said, I I, you know, I don't come to abolish the Torah, but I come to fulfill it, he said exactly what every Jew would say up to the, up to his day, and every Jew that would say after him. He said exactly what everybody all the Jews would say up to this very day. They're all here to fulfill the Torah. And let me just say, it's your and my responsibility to fill the Torah to fulfill the Torah too, which simply means to obey it. Actually, if you look it up in Thayer's Greek Lexicon, Christianity's most trusted source of Greek definitions for the New Testament, you look up the word fulfilled in the original Greek plerao. It means according to definition two, C three. To cause God's will, as made known in the law, to be obeyed as it should be. And by the way, that's a direct quote. That's a direct quote. Look it up. It's there. Thayer's, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't have it in front of me, but I've, I've memorized it, okay? Thayer's Greek lexicon of Hebrew. Actually, I might have a copy in front of me somewhere. Uh, Thayer's Greek Lexicon. I don't see it right in front of me now, but I have it in my library. Thayer's Greek Lexicon. Look up the word plerao, which is used when Jesus said, I don't come to abolish the law. I come to plerao the law. I come to, Jesus literally said, I have come to cause God's will as made known in the law to be obeyed as it should be. There you have it right there. That's it. And when Jesus comes back, he'll, he'll continue to do. He will continue to do what he has always done. He will play ra'o, the law. He will cause God's will, as made known in the law, to be obeyed as it should be. As we read here in Isaiah chapter 2, he will teach the law, the Torah, from Jerusalem. For the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and he will mediate for many peoples and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Okay, so most Christians and, and Jews, in fact, all Christians that I know of and all Jews, understand this to be what happens in the end times when the Messiah comes. In, in the Jewish mind, in the non-Messianic Jewish mind, it would be when the, when the Messiah comes. Um, to the Messianics, it would be when the Messiah comes again. In the, uh, in, the, in the mind of Christians, this is what will happen in the end. This is what will happen during the, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay? Uh, but they don't, they, they conveniently leave this part out, right? What well, it says, 
the law, the Torah will go forth from Jerusalem. They conveniently leave that out to satisfy their Paulian doctrine. Verse 5. Isn't this good, guys? Isn't this good? I love it. I just love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, and let's walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines. They also strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. The land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Now notice, I will, I will say this as well. You'll see this in every, in every age, in every time, from creation until now, when when a people are blessed, very, very blessed, and they have a lot of riches, they have a lot of wealth, materially speaking, earthly, I guess you would call it, wealth of this world, um, they tend to fall into sin very easily. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that it, they were, it was luscious, and plush and it says it was like the garden of the lord it was like it was like the garden of eden very blessed and it says they had abundance of food you check that out abundance of food and so this is what happens when people get overly blessed many times not always but more often than not there is a tendency toward pride which which brings in sin and that's what god that's what god doesn't like okay that's when that's when god gets sick and tired of of it okay verse yeah see and there's no end to their treasures and their land has been has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Verse 8, their, their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common person has been humbled, and the person of importance has been brought low. But do not forgive them. Wow. What a prayer. Enter the rocky place and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look on the proud look of humanity will be brought low and the arrogance of people will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Beautiful. I love that. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The proud look of humanity will be brought low. And the arrogance of people will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. A day of reckoning coming. 
Verse 12, For the Lord of armies will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is arrogant and haughty. See, notice how much it speaks against the proud, the arrogant, the haughty. Notice how much it speaks against that. It's so important not to have this natural human pride within us, but rather to have humility. For the Lord of armies, there's there's a reason why it mentions armies in here. The Lord of armies will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is who, who is arrogant and haughty. And every and against everyone who is lifted up and he may be br- that he may be brought low. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains. Now, again, this is, you know, this, this is very much, um, it could be literal, but now I don't doubt, like, why, why would God be, why, why would God be against the mountains? You know, figuratively, you know, um, figuratively speaking, again, a mountain represents like a government or a, an authority, something that's higher, lifted up. Um, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the delightful ships, and the pride of humanity will be humbled. Remember, this is the word of the Lord. The pride of of humanity will be humbled, and the arrogance of people will be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And the idols will, will completely vanish. People will go into cave into the into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground away from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to terrify the earth. Can you imagine? By the way, guys, just a little bit of a I just 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 saying, this is the God of what you know what a lot of people God is love. God is love. This is the God of love. And you know, I'm not saying he isn't love. I'm just saying that the way it's presented and the way that it's interpreted today is wrong. Okay? Yes, God is God. You get on the right side with God. You, you know, you obey him. I mean, to, to, you know, this is the love of God that we obey his commandments. You know, if we love him, we should obey his commandments. It says that over and over again throughout the scriptures. So when we get in the right place with God, yes, his love will be so reminds me of what Paul said, right? High and deep and wide and long. And it's just so vast. His love will be so vast for us. But you get on the wrong side of God. People will be, get on the wrong side of God, as it says here in the word of God from Isaiah, talking about the end times, that he will come with so much terror. People will be running to hide themselves under rocks. It's the same God. It's the same God. We're not Marcionites here, okay? It's the same God. Verse 20. 
on that day, people will throw away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the clefts of the rocks and the crannies of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he when he arises to terrify the earth. Again, it's the same thing. He will, you know, when he arises to terrify the earth, when he arises to terrify the earth. He's fixing to do that, people. He's fixing to do that. Verse 22, take no account, take no account of man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Powerful. Right. The fear of man is a snare. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of armies, the Lord of hosts, right, uh, is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support the entire s- supply of bread and the entire supply of water. By the way, guys, uh, just, just a little bit of a heads up. Do you guys know? Interesting little fact. I just saw a video earlier today from Mr. Swab of the World Economic Forum. Okay. And he said that, you know, the supply chain is going, there's going to be interruptions in the supply chain and all this kind of stuff. He's, he, it wasn't good news what he was talking about. Just saying. Just saying. It wasn't good news. And, you know, when a people gets on the right, the wrong side of God by their sins, by transgressing the sin of, or by tr- transgressing the, the, the Torah and making excuses, well, the Torah doesn't really mean that. Well, the Torah, yeah, yeah, try to make excuses, uh, you know, for their sin, whatever. If they transgress the Torah and they keep doing it long enough, the day is coming when God's going to say enough is enough and it's not going to matter what what man and whatever whatever we do um will be will come to nothing whatever we do will come to nothing look what happened in the world in the past couple of years so many things well if you do this it, that would be the end of it no it wasn't it would be, we'll do that that would be in the, no it wasn't we'll do this no it's like no matter which way you go you can't get away from it and so it is when God judges the world, when God sent, when the judgment of God falls, no height, with all of our power that we have on earth as a human race, all of our knowledge and technology is nothing compared to what God can do. He can ensure, he can send his judgment and ensure that, that he, circumvent, he circumvents every bit of technology, any every bit of, of our advancements. Because when the word of the Lord goes forth, nothing stops it. Nothing stops it. For behold, the Lord God of armies is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support the entire supply of bread and the entire supply of water. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the esteemed person 
the counselor and the expert artesian and the skillful enchanter, I will make mere boys their leaders. And mischievous children will rule over them. You know what? It almost seems like we got mischievous children ruling over us today. Doesn't it seem like it? And the people will be oppressed. Every, uh, each one by another and each one by his neighbor. The youth will assault the elder and the contemptible person will assault the honored, the one honored. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak. You shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your authority. He will protest on that day, on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, in the footnotes, binder of wounds. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. To rebel against his glorious presence. You don't want to do that, folks. You don't want to do that. The expression of their faces testifies against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can anybody say amen to that? Woe to them, says the word of the Lord. This is the scriptures. These are the holy scriptures we are reading, people. For they have done evil to themselves. Say to the righteous that they will go that it will go well for them. For they will eat of the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly for him. For what he deserves will be done to him. My people, their oppressors treat them violently and women rule over them. My people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and leaders of his people. This reminds me of James where it says, you know, that if you're a leader, don't necessarily desire to be a leader because you'll have more strict judgment. Quote, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. By the way, I understand God here because it's like, you know, I, I still say the problem of society today, especially in the Western world, is the church. It is. They have, they have, they're, they're corrupted. They're a bunch of lawless, not all of them, but a lot of them far too many, let me put it that way. They're so corrupted, so lawless, all based upon lawless doctrine as well. The greasy grace, counterfeit grace, false grace doctrine. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. Pastors who preach this hyper-grace, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. In the footnotes, grazed over the vineyard. The, the goods stolen from the poor are in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and oppressing the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of armies. 
Moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, again, this is the reason why, haughty, it's the only reason why it talks about here, it's the only reason given, pride, arrogance, and walk with their and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps and jingle the 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 ankle the anklets on their feet. The Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. On that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings. Bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festive robes, outer garments, shawls, purses, papyrus garments, undergarments, headbands, and veils. Now it will come about that instead of balsam oil, there will be a stench. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of, a, instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a robe of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn. And she will sit deserted on the ground. Powerful, powerful. You know what, guys? I just got to say this. I, I mean, I am just, I'm just stoked over reading Isaiah here. I mean, it's just so amazing, so awesome, so awesome. Isaiah chapter four: A remnant prepared. For seven women will take hold of one man on that day, saying. We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. Verse 2. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be glorious, beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and beauty of the survivors of Israel. Now, let me just stop here again. You know I have to stop here. The word branch, or the name branch, you see the word branch in that in that translation, um, is capitalized. Um, and most most every Christian I know um, understands the branch to be an, one of the names of Jesus. Okay, a rod, a staff. Um, if you want to say a stick, a branch. So Jesus is like the branch in. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, let me just show you guys this. I got to show you guys this. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. This is a powerful, I know some of you, if you, you know, you've been with me a lot, you know that, you know what I'm going to say here. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. So, okay. I just want you to think, Moses, God. Aaron, prophet. 
especially Moses, God, okay? So, Jesus the branch, the rod, the staff, whatever you want to call him. Moses came down from the mountain. No, let me see. There are so many different parallels between Moses and, and Yeshua and the th different things that happened and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, when Moses came before Pharaoh, before all that, when Moses came before Pharaoh, the first thing he did was he brought his branch, right? He brought the branch and he threw the branch down and it became a snake and he picked it back up again and it became a branch again, okay? I want to show you one more thing before we move on here. One more thing. This is John chapter 3. You, you guys know what I'm, I'm going to say here. You know, you guys know what I'm going to say. Um, John chapter 3, verse 14. Okay. John chapter 3, verse 14. This, These are the words in red, you know. So this is attributed to Jesus saying this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about being crucified. Okay. So he likened himself to be he likened himself to a serpent on the cross. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. He, li he likened himself to the snake on the cross. Okay? Um, so, my point is this. When Moses came before Pharaoh, when Moses came before Pharaoh, and he had the branch, and he threw it down, and it became a serpent, and he picked it back up again, and became a branch again. Remember Moses, God? Branch, Jesus, okay? It's like God throwing down Jesus. And he becomes a serpent on the cross. He threw him down, so to speak, basically almost like in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane when, when his troubles began. Right to the very pinnacle of it is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God threw down the branch, threw down Jesus, just like Moses threw down his branch. It became a serpent. As Yeshua said, he likened himself to be a serpent on the cross. And then, in the same way, as Moses picked up the serpent again, it became a branch. So God picked up Jesus again in the resurrection. He became a branch again. Very, very powerful. So, this is Isaiah chapter 4. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride of the beauty of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that one who is left in Zion and remains behind in Jerusalem, who uh, will be called holy, everyone who, who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Verse 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, right? burning here in the footnotes is destruction, then the Lord will create over the entire area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and a brightness of a flaming fire by night 
for all for over all the glory will be a canopy the glory will be a canopy over all and there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and uh, and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain okay so let's go on here talk about this is isaiah chapter 5 parable of the vineyard and Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read after this. By the way, I, Isaiah chapter 6, very, very awesome, awesome portion in there, which I would call, perhaps even call it the born-again experience of Isaiah. We're going to get that. We're going to get to that. At least the repentance of Isaiah. And this is why I put it in the um, in the title, uh, repentance of Isaiah, or Isaiah's repentance. Okay, let's read this. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, let me sing now for my beloved, a song of my beloved about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he carved out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. In the footnotes, worthless or unripe. Verse 3, And now, you inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled to the ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds not to rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his delightful plant. So he waited for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Woe to those who attach house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. And you alone are the landowner in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of armies has sworn, many houses shall certainly become desolate even great and fine ones without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer seed, a homer of seed will yield only an aphah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning so that they may pursue intoxicating drink, who stay up late in the evening so that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Moreover, my people go into exile for their, for their lack of knowledge. And their nobles are famished, and their multitude is parched with, with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, or the grave, has enlarged its, its throat to open its mouth beyond measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her voice of revelry and the jubilant within her descend into it. 
So the common people will be humbled and the person of importance brought low. But the eyes of the haughty also will be brought low. But the Lord of armies will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. And the lambs will graze as in their pasture. And and strangers will eat in the ruins of the wealthy. Woe to those who drag wrongdoing with cords of deceit and, and sin as if with cart ropes. Who say, let him hurry. Let him do his work quickly so that we may see it. And let the plan of the Holy One of Israel approach and come to pass so that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing intoxicating drink, who declare the wicked innocent for a bribe and take away the rights of the of the ones who are in the right therefore as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses in the flame so their roots will become like rot and their blossom blow away like dust for they have rejected the law of the of the lord of armies and discarded the whole the word of the holy one of israel For this reason, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the the middle of the streets. Despite all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a flag to the distant nation and and whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is tired or stumbles. No one slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the undergarment at his waist loosened, nor his, thin, his sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hooves of its horses seem like flint. And its chariot wheels like like a storm wind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey. And it carries it off with no one to save it. And it will roar against, against it on that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks across to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. Finally. Isaiah chapter 6, this is a very, very important chapter and very actually dear to my heart as well. I remember years ago studying this chapter and it's the meaning of it. It is just so, so amazing. So get ready, guys. Get ready. So what I'm going to be talking about is I'm going to touch a little little bit on life after death and um, some of the viewpoints of the Seventh-day Adventist Church as well. Um, but let's get into Isaiah chapter 6. I, I, I consider this to be the point when Isaiah repented, perhaps even like you, you want to call it the born-again experience of Isaiah. Verse 1, In the year 
of King Uzziah's death. Okay, let me just let me just stop here for a second again because I did so much study on this chapter. This why would it why would it mention this? King Isaiah's death meant sorrow, mourning. It was it was a time of it was a, it was a low point in in the one of the low points in the history of of the children of Israel in the year of King Uzziah's Uzziah's death. Can't say it was a good year. Um, so, in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord. Powerful. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with his with the train of his robe filling the temple. The train, by the way, is the. It's almost like a tuxedo. We got like the tail, and. The way it's understood, the longer the train of a king, the more glory is um, that that king possesses. Okay, the more glory is due that king, the more honor and glory, uh, the higher authority that that king is. So the longer the train, the more glory, the more authority, the more honor that king would have. This says the train of his robe filled the temple. It's like the the glory and the honor of the Lord was so great that the symbol of his glory and honor, the train, did not just reach to the to his knees or to his ankles or you know reach 10 feet behind him or even 20 feet or even 30 feet behind him. It became the wallpaper of the temple. It filled the temple. More than just the wallpaper of the temple. It filled the temple. Beautiful, beautiful. Verse 2, seraphim. Okay, so seraphim are um, angels. And some believe them to be angels of fire. Because one of the meanings of the word seraph is, is uh, referring to fire. So we have angels or beings of fire. Um, we're standing above him, each having six wings. With two, covered his face. With two, covered his feet. With two, flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. Think about what was going on in the earth in those days. Think about the barbaric and animalistic acts that were done by the other nations at that time. Think about the horrific things that the children have suffered baby, whatever they did with these children. And think about just how uncivilized it was back in those days. Think about it was a low, it was a low period in the life of, in the history of the children of Israel was the year that King Isaiah died. Year of mourning, a year of loss. Not to mention all of the horrific things that were going on. If you want to call them horrific, 
Think about what was going on in the earth in those days. Several hundred years before Jesus was even born. Here's the point. In spite of what was going on in the earth in those days, in spite of what the children of Israel were going through, maybe I shouldn't even say in spite, but in the, fa in the face of all of that, the seraphim cried out one to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The whole earth is is filled with his glory. All they saw was the glory of God. They saw the beauty of the Lord all over the earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. I remember once talking to a Seventh-day Adventist about life after death. You know, Seventh-day Adventists, they believed in soul sleep. I don't believe in soul sleep for many reasons. Luke chapter 16 is one. Not, never, not to mention a lot of the other things that it talks about in Second Ezra and Book of Enoch and many witnesses. But, I mean, without getting too much into that, uh, one of the... Uh, I was talking to a... I was talking to a, a a man who was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he said, well, you know, it can't be. One of his biggest, one of his biggest reasons why you cannot die and go to be, you know, in, in paradise, if you want to put it that way, or however you want to say it. A lot of people say go to heaven, however you want to say it. I mean, different ways of saying it. Um, he says that can't happen. That just doesn't happen because if it did, you would know what was going on here on earth, and that wouldn't be quote-unquote, heaven. That wouldn't be heaven. If you knew what was going on on earth, that wouldn't be heaven. I thought about that. I thought, that can't be right. Because when you think God is up there going, oh, boo-hoo, like, what's going on? What's going on on earth? Like, he's all, you know, no. The angels are not up there going, oh, my, look what's going on in the earth right now. I believe they're still doing this. They're still saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full, full of his glory. They have a different perspective. They have the heavenly perspective. They look at it from a completely different point of view. Would it be right to say that in the days of Isaiah, back 2,700 years ago, give or take, was it was worse than it is now in regards to the barbaric activity that happened on earth? I mean, that's something we can talk about. But regardless, there it wasn't like a whole bunch of saints on the earth back in those days. Lots of horrific, horrific things happening in, from the point of view of man. Yet... They said the whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Okay, so here again, the temple filling with smoke, that is not literal smoke. That is the appearance of the glory of God. We saw that several times up until this point. You know, the dedication of the, of the tabernacle, the dedication of the temple, 
and so on and so forth, several different um, times in history up until this point where smoke appeared as the, it was the glory of God that appeared as smoke, I should say. Um, literally the house of the Lord, temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, house was filled with smoke. Then I said, here's, here's Isaiah's um, repentance, or at least evidence of a potential repentance here. Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am ruined. Tell you, when you see this kind of thing, when you see the glory of God, when you see the Lord sitting upon his throne, when you see the Lord, when you see the angels, when you hear this, when you experience this, you, you might say the same thing. It, it, it might ruin you. I am ruined. Woe to me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Apparently, Isaiah must not have had a very good vocabulary. He must not have been a man who used, you know, well, maybe he, he used some choice words uh, um, one too many times. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So, again, sorry, Gospel of John, it says that no one can see God, no one can see the face of the Father, because, yeah, you can. Okay? And let me just let me just say this too, because I know some of you, some things are probably going through some of your minds. It's like, well, but it says in, in you know, it says in the Torah too, no man shall see his face and live. But you know, in context, okay. So when Moses saw the face of God, it says in Numbers twelve that he actually did face to face. I speak with God. Jacob saw the face of God very clear. He actually called the place where he saw the face of God Peniel, Peniel. Okay, which means the face of God. Um, and here we have, uh, he saw the Lord. Um, here's the thing. You can, one could argue, nobody can see God and live. Yes. Because when you see God, you die to yourself. Now, it's not talking about literal, physical, biological death, not necessarily. It's talking about uh, basically dying to yourself. Basically, your your sinful your sinful man will die. You see God, you're done. You're done. Your sinful man is done. Okay, that's that's a good culture for the born again experience. That's a good cu culture for when all of a sudden all have all ha all becomes new. When all the old passes away and all the new comes, that's what happened to me. When, when God showed up, what could I do? I dropped everything. It's like, you can take your this world, as, as that old song says, you can take this world, its wealth and its riches, I don't need earth's fame. You can take sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I don't need it. This is not even to be compared to it. The glory of God, the presence of God, the Lord is all I want. I just want him. So he can say, I, I mean, he can say, I saw his face and, and lived. I mean, 
died, <laughs> died and, you know, uh, lived in, as it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life. I now live in the flesh. Now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, because now you live by, you are risen with him, right? So, um, so in the same way, yeah, you cannot, you can also say, you know, a person cannot be born again unless you die first. Okay. Uh, but again, I mean, there's different ways of interpreting that. Uh, I think the most important way is that you die to yourself, die to sin. You know, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. How can you, who are dead to sin, live in it any longer? You have died to that old lifestyle. You can't live in that lifestyle at all. You have risen anew with him. Um So there it is right there. Um, Isaiah said, woe to me for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Right? So he was ruined, basically dead. He died, man. He, he's gone. I mean, he, in you know, figuratively speaking, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and atonement is made for, for your sin. Now notice again. Let's talk about this for a minute. This angel, and most people would understand angels to be super natural beings that have super powers even this angel could not handle the coal with his own hands he had to use tongs to hold it to to handle it because of it being so dangerous and burning um uh and yet he touched the mouth of isaiah with it and uh and and it was that coal that because isaiah repented and the burning away of the the sins of Isaiah, especially the sins of the mouth, okay, uh, caused repent or caused atonement to come. It does not say, "Oh, behold, uh, you know the sacrifice has been made for you, therefore you're covered." No, it says, "Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away." In other words, in other words your your unclean lips are purged. Therefore, your sin is taken away. Your guilt is taken away. Therefore, in accordance with all of the Torah, that you have atonement. Again, there's atonement with no blood there as well. Atonement is made for your sin. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom, who will go for us? Interesting, plural. Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not understand. Keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. Make, your hearts, make the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes blind, so that they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and land is utterly desolate, the Lord has completely removed people, and there are many forsaken places in the midst of the land. 
yet there there will still be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains, and uh, remains when it's cut down. The holy seed is its stump. Okay, that concludes our reading of the scriptures for tonight. I'll get in the chat here, see what's going on. Lots and lots of stuff going on in the chat there. Again, I, if you guys, if you've, you know what, I, I apologize. I can't even go back to, yeah, I can't even go back to um, where I left off when it comes to the chat because the software, the, the software that I'm using only allows so many, I don't know, maybe, hundred or hundreds of couple hundred chats. So I can only see the, some of the more recent ones. If you want to direct a, a question to me and I don't get to it, first of all, if you submitted it early, um, my apologies. I'm sorry. There's no way for me to get it to, to get it or to read it now. If you, if you don't mind, um, please resubmit it, resubmit the question, put at Christopher in it. Uh, that way it brings it to my attention that, um, it's easier for me to find, okay? Um, otherwise, I probably won't see your your comments. Billy says, ask a question. Torah is, as in the 613 laws in the books of Moses. Good question. Very good question. Um and to answer that question is actually a little bit more involved than you think. Um, I should make it clear that usually when I say the word Torah, almost always when I say the word Torah, I'm talking about the books of Moses or the laws that came through Moses. But not always. I mean, you look in, in, the, in the Jewish world, um, they use the word Torah or instruction Actually, they they interpret Torah as instruction more than you know. They say it's it's better it's a better interpretation than law. And they, they like to think of it as instruction instead of law. But it includes the laws, but it is instruction. Um, and and so sometimes when Jews, even Jesus, we read about it in the Book of John, in the Gospel of John, when he said law, he wasn't talking about the books of Moses. He he was he actually referenced um, the Psalms. So um, Torah normally means the books of Moses, uh, the instructions that God gave us through the books of Moses, through Moses. Um, but sometimes it means more than that. Sometimes it means the entirety of of the the Tanakh, the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, another thing is, I have said this many, many times in my past as well, but I, I think this should be clarified. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I have heard it, many other people have heard it, especially Christians, and it's, it's, it's quite ironic that Christians use, and they teach, well, there's 613 laws, and you know, all those laws are perfect, and there's no one that's perfect, therefore you can't do all the laws. Like, whoa, 613 laws is way too many laws to do. Uh, you know, and so you stumble on one, and you, 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 I mean, all of this, all of this nonsense, okay? And it is nonsense because I'm not, you know, 
don't get me wrong, Billy. I mean, uh, uh, for a long time, I always said 613 lines myself, 613 lines. But there's a few things that need to be uh, need to be cl- clarified here. Number one is that 613. The number 613 is actually from the Talmud. The Talmud. Christians don't didn't make that up. It's not in the Bible. God didn't say there's 613 laws. It's actually from the Jewish Talmud. And it's from one particular Jewish man, Jewish uh, sage or rabbi, whatever you call it, who who counted 613 laws. However, there there has been um, a number of other Jewish scholars, even in more recent history, that has counted the laws, and they say it's not 613. They say that number is incorrect. They're actually they actually say that against their own Talmud. Okay, they some say it's more, some say it's less, some you know, whatever the case is. Um, so I find it very ironic that Christians grab up on the six hundred oh six hundred thirty. Oh yeah, we'll use this as a selling point for Jesus. We'll use this to to for a sales pitch for Jesus. Oh six hundred thirteen. How can you do six hundred thirteen? Oh six hundred thirteen. Meanwhile there's a good chance that it's wrong. That number's wrong. Um, furthermore, I'm not sure where everybody's, like I know that some of you are from different places around the world, but let's just use America as an example. I have heard, I can't confirm it, I haven't counted, and I, honestly, I don't want to count it. I'm not going to count. But I've heard that that even lawyers in America do not know how many laws. There are so many laws in America. So many laws, they don't know how many. Uh, they estimate at least 4 million. 4 million. And many Americans would consider themselves to be good law-abiding citizens. Does that mean they're, they, they are obeying all 4 million laws? No. So... A lot of Christians would consider themselves to be good law-abiding citizens. Say, oh, really? Yeah, you obey over 4 million laws? Yet you can't obey so-called 613 God's laws? It's true. A lot of these Christians who say that God, there's too many of God's laws to obey, you can't obey them. Um they actually obey the law of man more than they obey the law of God. And the law of God is easy. Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 makes it very clear. This is easy. It's not too difficult for you. It's not hidden for you. It's not too far from you. It's easy. Um, the kingdom of God is at hand, basically. It's right there. You just take it. You don't have to do anything. I mean, you don't have to go far. It's right there. Basically, that's what it's talking about. So I do not mention 613 laws except when it's brought up like this because i don't know that that's true and even the jewish some jewish scholars say it's not true uh let me just let me just clarify it like this it's it it the best way to look at the law of god to interpret and to apply the law of god is in the same way that you apply the law of the land Let's just say, just for the sake of conversation, that there are 613 laws. God never meant all 613 laws to be 
to be obeyed by everybody. It's that's very clear, okay? Because most of the six so so called six hundred thirteen laws are for the for Levites and priests. They're not for the common man. Some are only for men. Some are only for women. Some are for, only for children. Some are only for farmers. You know, some are only for the strangers in the land. I mean, it, it, when it comes down to it, us today, out of those hundreds of laws that there are in the Torah, only a fraction of them are applicable for us today. And God doesn't want, uh, never, and never intended everybody to obey all of the hundreds of laws because the laws are obviously not made for for everybody. It's almost like if you're riding a bicycle, are you supposed to obey the laws of aviation? If you're riding a you know little car, if you're driving a little car, uh, are you supposed to be obeying the laws of buses? No, and we're all, we all know that, right? So out of those over four million laws in America, if there are over four million laws, again, over if there are millions of laws in America, only a fraction of those laws actually apply to the everyday common Joe. Right? So that's exactly the way it is with the Torah. It's exactly the way it is. Most people understand when I'm walking down the street, I don't have to walk down a runway. I'm not an airplane. Airplane laws do not apply to me. Most people understand that. When I'm riding a bicycle in the bicycle lane, I'm not, I don't have to do a circle check on my bicycle and, and uh, perform all the different uh, things that I need to do in a bus and ride in a bus lane, you know. Or going to bus uh, stops, whatever. Um, most people understand that; they know that. And so, in the Torah, with all with all the laws that are in the Torah, a lot of laws are not applicable because it's not for us, and God never meant it to be for us. Therefore, He doesn't even want us to obey. Never did want us to obey some of these laws because, you know, unless you're a Levite, even Levites, there are laws for women. There are laws for children that doesn't apply to them either, right? So. The best way to interpret and to look at the Torah of God is exactly how you look at the law of the land. And you should obey them. You should obey the Torah as if you are obeying the laws of the land in the, in the sight of law enforcement. Because, in fact, you are in the sight of law enforcement. God, his angels, the great cloud of witnesses, right? In Hebrews chapter 12. So... Thank you for your question, Billy. Awesome question. Tammy says, uh, Canadian pepper supply chains. <laughs> Did I say that? I must have. Yeah, if I said that. I'm not sure. Sorry. Yeah. No, I didn't. Is uh, that what I meant? Branding instead of beauty, one John. Yeah, um, I thought of that too. I, I thought of that too. What do I think? Um, it could be. It could be. I'd look into it more. Very interesting. And you, you, you wonder like... Yeah, it's, it's very good. Very good. Uh, I have to look into that more one, John. In, very interesting for sure. Going nowhere. Thank you, one, John, for the question. Going nowhere says, why does God test people? 
um, well, the same way that you would test anything in anybody. I mean, I mean, everybody. Um, we need to prove ourselves like, you know, I mean, we we build, you know, a relationship. It's a testing. Um, and God tests people for other reasons as well, like to make them stronger. Um to put them through some things, uh, trials to develop their character, to prove to themselves and, you know, to prove who they really are, what they really believe, um, like how God tested Abraham. Yeah, testing is part of life. Terrence says, great explanation. Thank you, Terrence, over there on TikTok. Going nowhere says, does God stop loving people who are in hell? I mean, I mean, this is a this is a big. I mean, this question is first of all, we have to define what love is. Okay, then we have to define um, what the wrath of God is. Okay, so first of all, if there's people burning in hell, um, you can't say that they are. How much of the love of God did they ever receive? You remember, Yeshua said, like, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but the fear the one, the one, the one who can throw your soul into hell after you, uh, after you die. Now, I, I have had somebody, now it's, it's, it's ridiculous, but I've had, I have had somebody tell me that, that, that Jesus is actually telling us to fear the devil. No, the devil doesn't. The devil is not, it's not, you know, you got this play. It used to be a play in church called uh, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. It's not like that, okay? Um, God is the judge. You have people that say, well, God doesn't throw, God doesn't throw anybody in hell. He doesn't send anybody to hell. It's we send ourselves to hell by, by rejecting Jesus. All these kind of things, right? And again, that is a pathetic explanation. It's really pathetic. I want the truth. I don't want it washed down, watered down. I don't want it, you know, uh, diluted. I want the truth, right? So God is judge. It makes it very clear, like judgment day will be like a court. We have the judge, we have witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses in the Hebrews chapter 12. And, you know, we have to present our case. On earth, when, in, in, I don't care if it's on earth or in heaven, wherever, where when in court does anybody ever send themselves to jail? Perhaps it happened. I don't know, but I don't know if anybody has ever sent themselves to jail. You can say, well, indirectly they did because, I mean, they didn't care whether they went to jail, therefore they, they did what they did, and therefore. But no, it was the judge who sent them to jail. The judge is the one who said, Jail time for you, regardless of their attitude, regardless of whether they wanted it or not. It's the judge who actually threw them in jail. In the same way, nobody ever sends himself to hell. It's the judge, God, who brings down the final word, right? So this whole thing, it's just making, a, making God into a 
beta. <laughs> he's just making God into a beta by saying, you know, oh, well, he doesn't, he doesn't send anybody to hell. You know, you send yourself to hell. No. No. I mean, if you don't care and there's no fear of God, yeah, you're kind of sending yourself to hell in a way, but it's not you that does it. It's God that actually brings down the final word. He's the one that judges and says, this is your final, this is your sentence. So, yeah, and that whole, that's the whole thing about um, love, what's that, what's that, um, how do you interpret love? Right. So God doesn't love everybody the same. It's very, very clear in the scriptures. And does God love anybody in hell? I can't imagine any kind of definition of love applying in that situation. I can't imagine any kind of definition of love at all. Thank you for your question. Going nowhere. Question for move. How do I convince my family to get a Bible? I even said I would pay, but still, but no is still up. Uh, they, they essentially are fine with just believing God or maybe doing mini practices like fasting and stuff, but a Bible isn't allowed because I'll be too religious. Essentially saying, I'll lose my mind. Um, how old are you? Question for move. How old? How old are you? Depending on your age, is I'll give different different answers depending on your age. That's why I'm asking. Going nowhere. Suppose you get to heaven and God Jesus says you could ask me any questions you want. What would, what would be your first question you would ask? Very good question. Uh, you know, there's so many things. It depend, and there's no there's no question that I that's on my mind that's really like bothering me. It's like I want to ask this question. I want to get I want to get this answer. There is nothing like that that I'm thinking of. Of course, there'd be you know things that we want to know more of. Um, clarifications on some of the things that the, the contradictions in scripture, perhaps. But again, these things are, uh, no, maybe not either. Uh, but um, I can't think of anything uh, going nowhere. I can't think of anything that that's really like a question that's been bothering me uh, that that I wish I could ask now, but I can't, and I would ask them, you know later. I I'm sorry, I can't really answer that question. Going nowhere says, do you believe people really burn in hell? Their souls burn, I mean. Yes, uh, but not everybody. Uh, there, I do believe there are different parts of hell. Uh, if you want to call it hell, there are different names for it. Okay, but just using a con um, the conventional name for it, I would call it hell. Um, yes. Um, and again, based upon some of the scriptures, based upon Luke chapter 16, Second Ezra, um, Book of Enoch, some of the other apocrypha as well, and based upon the plethora of witnesses that we have who have actually said that they've experienced it. And there's a, there's a lot of, like, most people have very similar accounts of what they experience. Um, 
Sometimes it's the fl it's f flames. And remember, they never get consumed because they are spirit, right? They feel the pain, they feel the torment, but they never get consumed because they're not flesh anymore. They're spirit. There's it's soul. Um, so yes, but not everybody, because I do believe there is another compartment of hell, if you want to put it that way, compartment that is just darkness, darkness and torment. So, I mean, it is spoken of in the scriptures as well, as well as many, many witnesses who have gone, uh, they say that they've been to that place, that there's, there's a place of fire, there's a place of darkness, um, different kinds. You know, Jesus spoke about the outer darkness, and then he spoke about the eternal fire. Um, so, yes, I do believe that, yes. Question for Move says, I'm under 18, older than 14. I really don't want to say my age. Um, well, I, I I see your 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 hunger for for the for the Bible. I mean, going to the library and looking up uh, getting a Bible like that. And uh, I'm sorry that you have a situation where you're you're not allowed to get the get a Bible. Um, I would just. Talk to them more about it. I mean, the Bible is available online anyway, right? So the Bible is available online. I, I, I'd be talking to your parents or parent as much as possible to, to uh, you know, to see if they would allow you to get one. Um, if they would allow you, even maybe it might, I'm not sure all of this situation, the circumstance that you're under, Perhaps they don't they don't want to go through the trouble of ordering it or what, I don't know whatever it is, but just you know make it as easy as possible for them. Just say I'll I'll go and buy it myself at the store, if you can, you know. Um, so that's what I would do. You know, um, it's available online. It's available in audiobook online. It's available on YouTube. You can listen to the whole Bible on YouTube. So, I mean, that's, that would be my argument. It's like, you're, why would you be holding a Bible from, from a teenager when you, uh, when this teenager has already got a Bible available anyway? Um, that's, that's what I would say, question for move. Thank you for your question. And I appreciate where you're coming from, question for move. I think it's it's actually quite quite amazing. Question for move says, how do people send themselves to hell? Uh, isn't it their choice? Yes. Um, however, you got stuff like, you know, when God hardens people's hearts and God didn't seem to give Esau a choice. Um, so, but I believe we have limited free will. I do believe we have free will. I'm not a Calvinist. 
Um, but I, I believe we have limited free will though. And, uh, I believe that everybody in hell is, is there against their choice. Kingdom Concepts says Sheol is the holding place. The righteous will be raised to eternal life, world, world to, to age to come. Uh, the wicked will be sentenced to death, second death. Okay, and there's there's many many plate there's many different beliefs and doctrines of the life hereafter. Um, I have looked, I have studied it. I mean, I'll you know I, I can I'll change my mind if I see something that's more uh, you know more convincing than what I've seen. I I've actually studied uh, life after death um, at least thirty years. At least 30 years. I got a book, you know, um, videos. Actually, how many books do I have? Videos, um, documentaries, and spoken to people face-to-face about it, uh, you know. Um, and so I take it all into consideration. I take what the Scripture says and with, 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 what the witnesses say. Because you've got, like, so many people interpreting the Scripture in so many different ways when it comes to anything to do with the future, Bible prophecy, um, life after death, all this kind of stuff. When it comes to Bible prophecy, nobody we don't have any witnesses for that, right? Because nobody's been to the future and back. But when it comes to life after death, some people have been dead and back. So um, I have studied that a lot, and that's why I, I, I believe what I believe uh, based upon the evidence that I've seen thus far. And, you know, I think it, you know, as it says in the Torah, let everything be established by two or three witnesses. And, uh, yeah, there are some that I, I wouldn't say that are credible witnesses, but a lot of them are very credible. Just like anything else. Kingdom Concepts says people do choose what to do and will be judged accordingly. It's fair. I do not believe in eternal conscious torment. Yeah, well, uh, to that I would say, yes, we do have, again, limited free will. Some people, uh, I set before you life and death, choose life. However, there are times where we see in the scriptures that, again, Esau, um, things like that, where they are, it's, 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 uh, It wasn't really his choice. He was he was not loved from from conception, uh, and so as far as far as eternal conscious torment, I do believe that. Um, again, based upon what I see and interpret in Scripture, and also based upon the witnesses, um, got to consider got to consider the witnesses. Otherwise, you'd be just throwing out thousands of people whose stories are all coinciding with one another and what they see and what they experience, throwing it all out as lies. And I just don't believe in doing that without a real good reason or evidence to prove that they're lies. Um, And I see a lot of evidence on the contrary. Uh, I've never seen, and I have actually argued this with a very, very liberal pastor 
um, face to face. I was at his church in his office. I was sitting there with him and he didn't believe in eternal conscious torment either. He's a very, very liberal pastor. Like, I mean, very liberal pastor. Okay. <laughs> very liberal pastor. Like, I mean, every sin you can imagine, he's for it. Okay. Uh, it sounded like he believed in hell to a degree, but not eternal conscious torment. I said to him, I said, you know, again, I, you look at all the witnesses, you study all these witnesses, all these people, it's, it's, it's really not hard to find hundreds of them. Um, and they all go to a place where they say these people have been there and, and, and people that have been there for a long time. And nobody has ever said, oh, you know what? I've only got three more days left here, right? Nobody's ever said, oh, you know what? I died and I saw old Uncle Jack there and he said he's only got two more months left for a sentence and after that he's going to heaven, right? Or anything like that. So again, I, I believe what I believe because of the evidence that I have seen and which I, which I believe is consistent with the scriptures. But like anything else, I am, if there's evidence that uh, people have that, uh, that is more convincing than all the stuff that I've seen the past 30 years, then, hey, I will change my mind. Someone asked a question, uh, if you question the New Testament, do you believe Christ is God? So people can believe Christ is God with or without the New Testament. And people can, people who actually do not question the, 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 the New Testament. I'm, I know people who do not question the New Testament at all. And yet they say Christ is not God. So I don't really see a correlation between accepting or questioning the, the New Testament versus saying Christ is God because you got people on both sides of the of the aisle, so to speak, both sides, regardless of whether they accept the New Testament or not. Thank you for your question. Okay. Um, all right, so that's, that's it for tonight. I'm wrapping it up a little bit of a longer night tonight going on towards almost three hours so uh for those of you who are interested make sure you're subscribed you follow make sure you leave a like if you haven't already and uh, i will see you again lord willing tomorrow um tomorrow night depending on where you are in the world uh, i'll start uh at 7 p.m eastern that's that would be New York time for you, for those of you who are wondering wondering what uh, how to coincide that with wherever you are. 7 p.m. New York time. I will be starting tomorrow. Um, and then we got Friday after that. Wow, another week passed so fast. So I will see you guys again tomorrow. Tammy says, love everyone. Have a great night. You too as well, Tammy. Blessings. Billy says, good night all. Good night, Billy. Right, okay. Tiabi the Glory says, shalom all, shalom.
Great deception says, thank you, brother. Much love and blessings to you all. Mark says, shalom. Yeah, and by the way, again, um, if you've submitted any questions earlier, if I haven't got to them yet, uh, my apologies. Um, please, if you will, come back tomorrow night. Uh, we go live every single evening um, from Sunday through Friday, six days a week, 7 p.m. Eastern New York time and uh, Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And so come back and join us. One John says, thank you. Glad to be out of Kings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Lord willing, we'll go through it again and we'll, we'll do it a little bit differently. I mean, next time, if we do it, if we do it again, next time we'll do it, uh, do it differently. Change it up a little bit. I mean, differently. Make it more interesting in, in by doing it different different ways. Thank you very much. Uh, the Great Deception says, hit the like button. Thank you very much. Okay, guys. Blessings. Thank you. Thanks again. Blessings multiplied to you guys. Until tomorrow, until next time, I pray the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you wonderful, wonderful shalom. Amen. Amen. See you tomorrow night.